Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me for this episode is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which I'm hoping will come back to regular programs if I mention it often enough, and Carl was also... Uh, the co-host for episode 100 when we did a jam-packed episode answering all of your questions along with several dozen things no one ever thought to ask us. So this week with Carl, I want to talk about all the action in Miami, or at least a small but important subset of the action in Miami. Specifically, the men's finalists, Hobart Horkacz and Yannick Sinner, both interesting in their own ways, along with a few of the guys they beat along the way, and maybe a little bit of talk of women's tennis, but that's not our primary focus this week. We'll do other episodes on the women's field. So Carl, do we agree we're going to say Hobart Horkacz? We're going to try. Okay, that... As far as we can tell, that is how he says it himself, according to the ATP website anyway. Um, it's a weird kind of inconsistent standard that commentators and faux commentators like ourselves apply, where sometimes we try to say it correctly, sometimes we do some anglicized version. But as far as today goes, Horkacz, it is. So he was the winner, Yannick Sinner was the runner-up. And before we get into all of that, I have a big philosophical question now that I've teased all this current event stuff. My big philosophical question is this. I have a theory that the difference between stat heads and let's say coaches or scouts or non-statty sports people is that stat heads tend to evaluate what the player is. So we look at what the player has done, what their stats are, what we see in their game right now. And coaches or scouts or non-statty people tend to look at what a player could be. So they look at, you know, the the body type or the shot. They look for room for improvement. Um, they look at tactical skills or gaps. They, they, they look at things that, in, in baseball, you hear the word projectable sometimes. And and I'm curious, Carl, this this feels like an insight to me, and maybe I'm just being being overconfident. But do you think that's a valid comparison or even a useful one? I think there's something to it. Stat heads do like to project players as well a lot. And you and I, to the extent we fit that category, uh, have done it or tried to do it or, or cited other people who have done it kind of quantitatively. And sometimes what they're using to project might implicitly or explicitly capture some of the the characteristics that you said the, the other group might use. So I think you've looked at, for instance, like can someone who is a mediocre returner project to be a top player? Uh, can their return game improve enough? Can they be good enough on serve? That doesn't matter, which could relate to their tactics, to their body type, to, to lots of things about them that are harder to quantify. So I, I think the distinction is a little fuzzy, but, but I definitely uh, appreciate the distinction as well. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one thing I wanted to I wanted to talk about. A sort of a sub question there is is yeah that young players are the obvious place where the is and the could be kind of merge. It still seems like the distinction has some value because for me anyway, if I'm looking at a 19 year old and saying, okay, this guy is quite good for 19, how good could he be? I'm not really. I mean, me personally, maybe I'm watching and thinking about what his game could develop into. But when I put my stat head hat on, hat on, which is my normal hat, then I'm I'm using historical information or aging curves, pretty standard stuff, to say 
not what could Yannick Sinner be based on all the details of what Yannick Sinner looks like right now. I'm saying what could a 19-year-old who has accomplished these things expect to do when he's 25 or something? I'm, I'm applying an algorithm to it. And that isn't exactly the same as evaluating what he is right now, but it seems like it's it's still pretty different from what a coach or a scout would do, right? Yeah, and I think maybe what what's driving this is there's still so much that we don't know yet about how to describe a player as they are right now in terms of um, something quantitative that can then be compared uh, objectively to other players in a way that is probably much more the case than other sports. I know you also have, while we're plugging each other's podcasts, a stat-minded baseball podcast, The Opener. And the level of stats we've got on players in baseball, I would contend, and I'm curious what you think, uh, they, they tell us so much more about what a player is right now that um, there's less sort of disagreement there or less room for interpretation and more more room to to project whereas in in tennis because we don't have quite those same level of stats we're, we're still grasping at who is Yannick Sinner today yeah that's what I desperately want for tennis and I guess I, I say desperately my revealed preference is that I'm kind of lazy about looking for it but in some parts of the day when I'm lying on the couch watching tv uh what I desperately want is stuff like what baseball has and the, the idea in baseball stats is is the idea of peripherals, that there's these top-line stats like wins, losses, batting average, home runs, strikeouts, the stuff that you can see, the stuff that shows up in box scores. And then there's all this other stuff. And baseball has so much of that other stuff like exit velocity and pitch speed and horizontal break on pitches and launch angle and all these things that don't they don't directly matter in terms of the outcome of a game. But if you have a guy, like let's say you have a hitter who's has a very low batting average, he's not getting on base very often. But if he's if he's getting the right launch angle on most of his, his hits, you'll see pundits say, this guy's due. Like he's bound to to get more balls in play. He's bound to hit more out of the park. He's, he's bound to turn things around because of these peripherals. And that's where that's where sabermetrics in baseball or stats in general in other sports gets really interesting to me is when you can look at some stats and say this is why the situation is different than what it looks like sinner might be number 23 in the rankings but if we look at these peripheral stats that like i imagine someday having we might say okay sinner really is number eight uh, or Sinner really isn't that, that good sinner's never going to be a top 20 player or something i don't know what the peripherals would tell us but I mean, if if we had all the Hawkeye stats to play with and the skills to analyze them, like what do you think those peripherals would be? What would you want to know about Sinner's game that's not showing up in the, the sort of standard issue tennis match stats? Oh, I'm... <laughs> Whenever I guess at this, I uh, I guess wrong. Like it turns out, these aren't particularly significant. I, I thinking about watching Sinner and other players and and what what makes them successful m- makes me wonder about kind of recovery from point to point. Like to what extent can can he sustain his basic foot speed and and spin and power um, after a particularly long point or a long couple of games or, or, you know, a disappointing outcome in a game. Um, 
I think precision, like how how close to lines can can he hit on serves and on on ground strokes uh, while while keeping enough of them on the right side of the line. Uh, ability to generate speed and spin from difficult positions like on the run, uh, footwork isn't ideal. Uh, well behind the baseline. Um, I guess like ability to move opponent around with shots. Uh, how much is the opponent forced to, to work? Um, how many shots that would, you know, sort of the equivalent in baseball of how often do fielders catch balls or, or, or produce outs from batted balls that are uh, for most fielders going to be hits kind of the equivalent uh, for, for, you know, great shots by opponents. How often are, are those shots rescued and the points eventually won? I, I, I'm just throwing some out, out there. You've probably got better ones. What, what would you, where would you start? Well, I'm not sure if I have, I have better ones. A lot of, a lot of yours sound like, I mean, they'd certainly be very interesting. The question is always how predictive they would be, which is like two or three steps beyond where we even have the option of going right now. But I love that I, the, the baseball stat is catch probability that uh, baseball savant does where based on the location of the ball, the speed of the ball, uh, what's the likelihood that a, the relevant fielder will make the play. And you can look at fielders who make a lot of the low probability catches or miss the easy ones. And that seems like a pretty obvious thing. Like you think about what makes Andy Murray so great, at least a healthy Andy Murray. Um, he not only gets to balls other people don't get to, he puts them back in play and sometimes puts them back in play with good shots. And that would be a, a fascinating number to have. Now, one one number that we do have, at least for, for this tournament and occasionally also for the Masters, and uh, it's one of those frustrating things that we can occasionally capture from tennis TV broadcasts, but it's not really standardized anywhere. But it, I, I saw a stat of average forehand and backhand speeds from Miami and for both forehand speed and backhand speed Yannick Sinner had the top average velocity so forehand speed Sinner this is all in kilometers an hour Sinner is 130 Korda is 129 Ronich 125 Rublev 124 and then Tsitsipas and Medvedev under 120 backhand speeds Sinner's average 119 Korda's 112 Rublev's 107 there's a pretty solid gap there a big gap on the backhand speeds a big gap between the top few and the next few in in forehand speeds that's not as complicated or maybe even as insightful as some of the stuff you're suggesting but it it's something like would you think that a player is it is that a good sign for the future if, if you're if you're hitting the ball harder than anybody else is is that the sort of peripheral we could look at and say you know, this guy's the real deal or he's better than his ranking suggests. I remember, I, I think you shared those stats in, in some show notes. And I meant to ask you, are those just for the quarterfinalists or is that for everyone? I realized that I was reading those names. It sure seems like it's just the quarterfinalists. I mean, so it's let, still, still impressive group to, to lead for sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that it's, it's incomplete information. I think that you would want that information, uh, but I think we've seen pass lists of hard, of highest MPHs, forehands and backhands on ATP, like averages over masters, and seen some some really top players near the top, but a, a bunch of others near the middle. I think Basilashvili is often near the top overall, um, but you know has 
has not made the top 10 and hasn't been one of the top players on tour consistently. You know, I, I think it's a piece, it's incomplete in that you'd also want to know several other things, including spin uh, percentage of the time that the ball actually goes in. Like, you know, I could, I could hit my forehand way harder on average than I do now if I didn't care how often it went in. Um, how close it is to lines, like are, are you hitting it hard but right at players? It doesn't really bother them that much. And also, you know, one of the one of the things that supposedly makes Roger Federer Roger Federer's shots much more difficult to handle than the MPH would indicate alone is that he takes the ball early. So he effectively, I guess, if we're continuing in baseball analogies, it would be a little like if you know a pitcher was able to pitch closer to the to home plate than the mound, it, even if he pitched the same speed, it would come at you faster. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it is an important element and it definitely indicates something about raw skill. Uh, and with those other pieces, uh, it could say something overall about a player's, um, shots and how difficult they are to handle. Yeah. The one obvious problem is assuming these lists are the quarterfinalists that it is suspicious. The top six on both of these lists are the same six people, um, they would leave out Baptista Agu and Bublik. And Ronich wasn't a quarterfinalist, was he? He shouldn't be on those lists if it's just quarterfinalists. Um, right. Did he lose in the fourth round? I don't know. The fact that I don't yes, know Yes, the is... fourth round. Yeah. I just okay. have to have it up. Okay, so you're right. It must be more than the, the quarterfinalists, yeah. But again, this is another problem with all these stats is, I mean, we're basing this segment of the conversation on something someone tweeted. And yeah, it looked like a tennis TV graphic, but I mean... We don't know if they're filtering out drop shots. We don't know if they're filtering out uh, slices in general. Um, there's just a lot we don't know. We don't know what whether it's just matches on grandstand. Like, all these things are very possible, but without knowing these things, we don't really know what we're looking at. I mean, it, it all seems very plausible. But, I mean, to t- take Bublik, for example, he, he hit a lot of slices. It's just part of his game. So those those shots are usually very slow. The drop shots especially are very slow. Uh, but then he'll go and hit a 105-mile-an-hour return off of a first serve. And the, the, Bublik probably has the raw power of any of these guys, but looking at this sort of stat, which just sort of aggregates some mystery soup together, we don't know that. So, I mean, that, that, that's a big limitation. It seems like what, what you're suggesting and what I think we've talked about before, probably on the podcast, is we need to have one number that quantifies how good a shot is and just take into account speed, spin, placement, and maybe that's enough. I guess that those three would be a pretty big step where we could say this forehand is a, you know, a 93 out of 100 and this other shot was a 72. And once we had that number, which would hopefully have some clear association with how much it improved your chances of winning the point, uh, that would tell you how effective a player's forehand or backhand was or forehands from a certain position or something like that, or a player's serve returns were. Uh, but we're really, really, really far away from that, which is... Yeah. I mean, I think you, you touched on where this could really go, which is if there's a full-fledged win probability model that takes into account everything about, you know, the the, the snapshot of the point and then sees what a player does uh, to change that win probability up or down... You can hit a 93 forehand, but if you're doing it from a position where, you know, the average player in the top 50 would hit a 96 forehand because it's it's a high sitter, you know, at the tee, um, 
then that forehand isn't that impressive. So it, it's also about the hand dealt you in that moment. And, you know, that that very much raised the question for me also when I looked at the list. Not only were the names on it players who went deep in the tournament, but some of the players at the top of the list did better than some of the players at the bottom of the list in the tournament, including, you know, against each other. Uh, and And then I thought, well, there's a little chicken and egg question here, like, maybe Sinner won a particular match because he was hitting his forehands and backhands so hard, or maybe sort of like net points, it's it's an indicator of other factors in points that set him up to hit balls really hard. Like if you, um, you know, set up, if you, if you are able to build points quickly to where you do have a kill shot and then you can swing away, you're going to have a really high MPH, but it could be the shots before the the kill shot that um, that that did all the work, so to speak. So, um, you know, I, I think with Sinner, and we can talk about this because you wrote a post about it. It's probably not his first serve setting up immediate um, putaways, or or if it is, he's missing a lot of them, and those probably aren't counted. But you know, Raonich, a lot of his his ground strokes are the first ground stroke after a, a giant serve somehow came back, but rather weakly, and that'll boost his ground stroke speed with without it being primarily because of his raw ability on the forehand. Yeah, that's such such a big factor. I mean, Sinner seems to be playing like a serve plus three game more than a serve plus one game sometimes. And like you say, I wrote this post yesterday. We can talk about and. Uh, it's a great segue to what I wanted to get to next, really getting into what happened in this final between Sinner and Horkacz. Um, there was an article by Craig O'Shaughnessy on the ATP site. He's brain game tennis. I'm assuming most of you are familiar with him. And it, he used some Hawkeye data. He has, he has some graphics, which have some interest, I guess. And the main thrust of his argument is that Horkacz beat Sinner because he, he used the phrase backhand cage, that he hit it to Sinner's backhand so much it... You know, I don't know, it worked. It forced Sinner to hit a lot of backhands. I wasn't overwhelmed by the, the, the power of the argument, besides the fact that, I mean, obviously, yes, Sinner hit a lot of backhands, and hitting someone's backhand is a good thing. So uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't super insightful, and one of the things that limited it for me was that, I mean, obviously, you want to hit to a player's backhand. I mean, that's like standard advice you give to eight-year-olds, and presumably it is a strategy against Sinner and many, many other tour players. The question isn't, did he do it? Although I guess that is a valid question. Sometimes players don't execute on their plan. But the, that's not as interesting to me as the question of why could he do it? Because I mean, it, against a lot of players, Ronich is a great example. You can't decide your, your plan on every point. Like you are reacting on virtually every point against Ronich's serve. And with Sinner, that's not the case. Like like I say, Sinner's playing more of a plus three game. And if if you can prevent him from executing his strategy, like you can force him into his backhand corner. You can force him to rely on some imperfect footwork. You can take control in a way that you can't against someone like Ronich or Medvedev or Rublev or a lot of these other guys we're talking about. And I, I'm wondering, Carl, since we... we we both looked at that article that, that Craig wrote about the the backhand focus, and we'll talk more. But we, we've already talked offline a little bit about the about the limits of Sinner's first serve. Do you think those are related? That that Horkacz was able to to exploit the Sinner backhand because of Sinner's uh, relative serve weakness? Yeah, I definitely want to see the charts broken down by you know how often it was 
what do those look like if we're looking at points that were center first serve point second serve and then Horkacz uh, first and second I I um you know it, it's also there's something a little like just even looking at the the graphics where you can see where the ball landed which are useful because it tells you more information than just it's towards the the backhand um they're still being divided into fairly big chunks of the court and a lot of those balls a lot of players including you mentioned Raonic would would turn into forehands even when they probably shouldn't because they're so committed to it um so you know the, I think a couple of things to delve deeper into if if that was indeed a key to the match was you know did Sinner let more of those become backhands than usual or were they hit better than usual so he didn't have that choice um and and also um, you know, one thing, the, the thing that seemed to really be different and different between the two players, because kind of left unsaid is that Sinner was basically trying the same tactic, because as you said, almost everyone does in almost every match when you're not playing Andy Murray or select few where it's not as good of an idea. This, the really specific thing that Hurkacz did, did differently was target the backhand from his forehand much more than, than Sinner was doing. And is that a reflection of he was getting forehands in a better position where he could make more choices. He wasn't reacting as much. He didn't have to go cross court. Was there something in particular? Uh, the other thing here is that Sinner's backhand is really good. It's still a good play, but he's not as forehand dominant as a lot of other players on tour. And I say that somewhat based on my eyes and somewhat based on the work your, your match charting project has done, uh, looking at a bunch of his matches and looking at how uh, his backhand has compared in potency with forehand. So it's not even like as much the obvious play with him as it would be with many opponents. Yeah, that's that struck me as well. And I think one thing you mentioned is is very much to the point here that what Horkacz did well wasn't just a hit to the backhand, but that he, he hits with purpose. Like It, it seems to me that that's that's a cliche, but it it seems like a key to what's working for Horkacz these days, which is he he doesn't have any huge uh, huge assets that make him an obvious top five guy. I mean he he's he's big, he hits hard, he's got a good serve. Like a lot of things you can say about a lot of guys in the top fifty and even guys in the top one or two hundred. Uh, but what what has set him apart on the times that he does excel, or the, especially this past week with all the, the big matches he's won this week, is yeah, he's he's not wasting shots. He's not he's not getting himself into down the middle rallies. He's hitting hard. He's hitting the direction he wants to hit, and it doesn't always work. But his inside out forehand to the center backhand is it's a different animal than a Medvedev rallying inside out forehand to center's backhand would be. I mean, does, does that tally with with your observations of Horkacz that like he, he's hitting with more of a purpose than some of these other guys do? Yeah, with the bias of when he does well. I mean, it's the same yeah. guy who lost, you know, his second match in Rotterdam, his first in Montpellier, his second in Dubai. Like he, we we could talk about like past some past odd Masters results and and did did the winners go on to to continue at that level? It it did seem like he was doing that really well this tournament, and it's also interesting how you can frame a player um, saying kind of the same thing in a different way. I've felt 
for a while about him that like I found him puzzling. I thought he didn't have any obvious major weaknesses and he did a lot of things well. So I didn't necessarily think he was top five and I still don't, but I um, didn't really understand like his, his, his ranking and his, his mixed results um, because while he doesn't do anything uh, maybe as one of the five best in the world, including his serve, which, which could be better for his height. Um, he he does many things really well, which which he did against Sinner and in general in Miami. So putting on our our scout hats, going back to the the, the possibly fake distinction I introduced at the beginning of this episode, uh, I I wrote this article yesterday pointing out that that Sinner is not winning a lot of first serve points. That goes back to Carl's observation that he he sent to me that there's not much of a gap between his first and second serve points one. And for those of you who haven't read that article yet, his gap this year, I think I have these numbers right, he's won 56% of his second serve points, which is fantastic. I think it's it's third on tour behind, behind Tsitsipas and Nadal. And he's won 68% of his first serve points, which is in the bottom third of the top 50. So that 12-point gap is extremely small. And in the article, I outlined who normally has gaps like that. And the answer is clay court guys, mostly. Clay court guys and occasional short players who aren't clay quarters because they, they have to develop this game behind their serve, which of course keeps the second serve win percentage up pretty high, but they don't have a big first serve um, like Ronich and Medvedev and virtually everybody on the men's tour. So Sinner is tall enough. He's 6'2", I think. I mean, he, he's obviously very strong if he's hitting these big uh, ground strokes on both sides, generating all this pace. Um, so looking at the player he is right now, there's reason to be skeptical of whether he's going to have a lot of success on hard courts because he just he looks like a clay court player statistically he looks like someone who doesn't really have a weapon for his first serve but he's also 19 and putting on our scout hats then carl do you think we can we can expect him to develop more of a weapon then and and start looking less like a clay court specialist I mean, I'd love, I'd love to see the data, and I, I guess part of the challenge is we don't often have as much uh, tour-level data at age 19 or you know anywhere near it as we do for Sinner. But he, you know, I'm, I was just looking at like where his ace percentage ranks, and ace percentage is a is a rough measure of just sheer you know p- power and, and placement on on first serve and. Um, it's definitely affected by surface selection and so on. But, you know, he's barely ahead of John Millman. He's behind Rafa. He's behind Dan Evans, who's significantly shorter than him, and David Goffin, who is as well. Um, he, and he's, you know, near the bottom of the of the top 50 and well below average. So given his height and his, his power and spin on ground strokes, could he improve that or even if he doesn't improve ace percentage that much could he improve the overall first serve success maybe, maybe he just gets more in if he's if he doesn't get more out of it uh and and that makes makes it more worthwhile it seems like it and it seems like that's something you could work on i i would just imagine for someone whose game is so feels so complete or so so just like adult in so many ways that it's just like hard to imagine that his he hasn't along the way worked a ton on his on his serve. On the other hand, we know about the very best players of all time late in their careers, fine tuning something about their serve and getting more out of it, at least temporarily. I'm talking about like Rafa and, and Djokovic 
at, at various Grand Slams that they won. So I, I'm generally bullish because he also seems like he's really good at working hard on his game, it, given what he's accomplished already and, and his attitude during matches and tournaments. So so I, I'm pretty optimistic, but um, would definitely want to know what the precedents show. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the presidents of Rafa and Djokovic because that I mean I I know you're not seriously making a projection based on that set of comparable players, but that would be the most extreme form of selection bias. Like you're saying, if he turns out to be one of the best players of all time, uh, he will do this thing that will make him the best player of all time. Again, I'm I know that's not your argument, but it is. It, it's interesting that that's that's what sets them apart. Like. We know from hearing players talk about their their training, their coaches, their off-season regimens, players are constantly trying to improve. But this is something that keeps popping up in my research over the years, that players don't improve that much, at least relative to the tour. I, I fully believe that they're practicing smartly, they're getting better, their coaches are telling them useful things in some objective sense, like Stan Wawrinka at age 33 is better than Stan Wawrinka at age 25, maybe even subjective to tour in, in the case of Wawrinka. But for a lot of players, all they can do is tread water. So to me, making the argument that someone is going to improve relative to the tour, like the burden of proof is on you, um, that there has to be something unique about that player or particular about like the reason why I think we often talk about the the weakest part of someone's game is if they have a real weakness, which might be true of sinners for serve right now, the real weakness is an opportunity to improve. Like it might mean that they haven't had the right coach talk to them about it, or they haven't practiced it enough, or they don't have the right tactics. And those are more easily fixable than having, you know, Andre Rublev improve his backhand speed from 108 kilometers an hour to 112. I mean, he's already presumably worked on that a lot. Uh, now, one thing I, after writing that article, well, hold last on. Week, I, go I ahead, gotta, yeah. I gotta say on Djokovic and Nadal, um, they just from the serving point of view, they were they have never been among the top players on on tour. So I, I guess your point is like, if they can improve something, that may be one of the that may be an indicator that they are among the all-time greats and that only players like that can do it. On the other hand, the, the selection bias works in that we hear about it, we know about it. If a guy improves from like the third round to the fourth round and ups his ace percentage while doing it all in court 13, we might never hear about it. So I'm not I'm not convinced that um, being able to, to improve your serve is, uh, is so unique to them as opposed to just we, we know about it more. I mean, Matteo Berrettini has improved his his ace percentage from his first years on tour, um, you know, Lloyd Harris, like it, it, it does happen occasionally. Uh, Rublev was is serving much bigger than he was a few years ago. So uh, I, I'm, I'm cherry picking and I'm looking at players who are near the top. So this is where I want something more comprehensive, but I, I, I don't want to suggest it's just Djokovic and Nadal who, who could do it. That's fair. And it's, it is something that, we should research more is the difference between improving your serve and improving your return. Cause most of the research I've done has looked at return because it, it seems like a lot of players have some inherent limitation. They're just not good returners. Maybe there's anticipation involved in it, or maybe it's just hard to practice. I don't know, but there are players who that seems to be the gap in their game and they never really close that gap. Well, as you mentioned, there are a lot of players who improve their serve. And in terms of just 
getting better at serving, there's something obvious you can do, which is <laughs> with a good coach and maybe some video feedback, hit a lot of serves and you know, perfect your motion, perfect your toss, make it all repeatable, all that, all that stuff that we know, but it's really, really hard to do at this level. And to your point that it can be improved, I don't know if you saw my my tweet on this last night. This came out of a conversation I had with Alex Grusting yesterday for his Great Shot podcast. Um, he, we were talking about Maria Sakari's first serve percentage, which is 70% in the last 52 weeks, which is top five in the WTA. And that alone, like that blew my mind. I brought it up solely because I was looking at the top five, saw Maria Sakari's names like, holy crap, I did not expect to see her on this list. But then Alex mentioned it, it, she had improved a lot. She'd sacrificed some um, first serve in percentage in exchange for winning more of her first serve points. I dug a little deeper. She has improved her first serve win percentage every year she's been on tour, which is five or six seasons, from winning below 60% of her first serve points to winning 70% now, which is, I mean, it, it, I know we're overusing baseball metaphors, but that's like going from a 195 hitter to a 325 hitter in old-fashioned batting average. It's just, it, it's not only incredible, I'm guessing it's unheard of, and I, I do plan on looking into it so we can see if there's other players who've done that, but I mean, it's, at the very least, it shows that it's possible. Like the, the, you can arrive on tour as a player without much of a weapon for your serve and, and develop into someone who who does have it. I still would contend that it's very rare and is a way to separate the the best players from from the rest. Most players just don't do it, or else we wouldn't see those numbers. It would all either the game would change or um, it, it the numbers would all change in lockstep, so they wouldn't. They, no one would stick out like that. But um, but it is possible. I mean, and so, I mean, I guess that's the that's the positive outlook for Sinner is that there are players he can look to. I mean, Berrettini is a great example, and he probably has access to Berrettini's coaching team. Um, if Berrettini can do it, eh, maybe Sinner can do it too. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, I think, it, well, of course, I'm not saying he's Rafa or Novak, uh, even if, if he does have one of the, the best profiles at his age we've seen in a long time. <laughs> He's clearly like improved a lot in the last couple of years, and maybe it's harder to pinpoint and we have better stats on serve, and maybe a serve hasn't improved or was starting from an even even lower point, but he's he's shown the capacity for improvement of his game because he's clearly much better than he was two years ago. It's not just that he's getting more opportunities at tour level. He's he's winning matches that he wasn't. So um and he's so young that that like he is in the the part of his career where we don't notice players as much because they're doing it at much lower levels, but they're they're definitely improving their games. On, on the soccer stat, uh, in your tweet, you highlighted the that uh, percentage of first serve points one, which is, um, you know what what you were you were talking about. But you'd want to know like, okay, is it is it worth the trade off with other parts of her service game? And she's also each year improved her service point one percentage. So she's actually like gotten the balance well that it's it's also improving that, albeit not as much. So so that is really incredible and inspiring. I'd, I'd also urge you to look at the Rublev's service stats, not just the ace percentage, because they're they're pretty remarkable year to year. So we, we, we've both been cautious about making this Sinner to, to Nadal or Sinner to Djokovic comparison. And I mentioned in that blog post last night that I, I don't think it's a really valid tip to give to a young player to say, just be like Rafa. It's not really a practical route for much most players, but you can only say that so many times before 
you might have to start coming to the terms with the idea that maybe we do have another Rafa on our hands. Like, and again, caveat, caveat, caveat. He's not Rafa. There's tons of differences. Rafa is one of a kind. But to the extent that you can have another Rafa come along, after writing that post, I was watching the the quarterfinal match, which I hadn't seen between Sinner and Alexander Bublik. And here's what I noticed in that match. He wasn't serving big, but he was winning a ton of second serve points. Bublik was very aggressive. And anytime Sinner had an opportunity, he was finding a way to pass. He was passing with his forehand. He was passing with his backhand. He was hitting sharp angles. He was hitting down the line shots right into the corner. He hit lobs over Bublik's head. He was totally unflappable through all of Bublik's antics, including multiple um, underarm serves. I think Sinner won them, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But in any case, uh, Sinner broke him at the key moments. I mean, if... If you had CGI'd Rafael Nadal into Sinner's place on court, I mean, done some kind of magic to adjust the righty-lefty thing, it wouldn't have been out of place. Every single thing Sinner did in that match was, broadly speaking, out of the Rafa playbook. So with all these caveats in mind, like, I mean, can we be talking about sort of a a right-handed up-and-coming Nadal? Is it so foolish to to make this comparison with a -a one-of-a-kind player? (laughs) um you know you said unflappable and that wasn't rafa's that's never been the the dominant word used for rafa's on-court demeanor but you know right right from being a kid playing the very best he he was a just impressive and intimidating on-court presence played every point well and smart um had so many tools you know i think there's a lot of emphasis with Rafa on like how he's developed certain things over his career, but he was already, um, you know, throwing in some of the other elements of his game, even as a teenager, it just weren't quite as developed. I, I think with Sinner, you, you've got to like marvel at how balanced he seems to be surface wise in a way that Rafa wasn't. Um, look, let, let's clearly accept he's behind Rafa in terms of career projection, like way behind, like everyone will be at this age for, for the end till the end of time. But, um, there are so many things to like just from watching him and, and also from looking at the results. Um, one of the things that uh, I've been just marveling at when, when looking at what he's done these basically since the restart is who he's lost to. I, I, that's like a, it's all in baked into ELO and, and he's top 10 ELO for a reason. But if you just look at the names, like his last losses, it's it's uh, Horkots in, in the Miami final that we just talked about. Not a terrible loss. Karatsev, another top ELO guy. Uh, Medvedev. Beden, he, Sinner actually, you know, outpointed him, but just lost in a third set tiebreak. Shapo, Rublev, Zverev, Rafa at the French Open, Dimitrov. Jerry on clay, which is not a bad loss. Kachanov. I mean, those are his those are his last losses, and he's had way more wins than losses during that time. And a lot of some of those losses were close, and uh, some of his wins were not. So it's it it just there's nothing that feels fluky about him. So it, it, I don't know. You can tell me whether you buy my my tentative argument that he profiles as more of a clay court specialist. Um, what do you think his clay court season this year is going to look like? Is his ELO rating going to be even higher after the French Open than it is right now? You know, I was thinking about your point about projections, who a player is and who a player can be, and how there's so much 
in in whatever normal times means that's it's out of control and unpredictable uh, things about their body they don't know yet that might break down in, in certain situations so giant bunch of ifs when you throw in what is this clay season going to look like we've heard mixed things about the french opens prospects different players are going to have different advantages and disadvantages in, in traveling and getting set up in, in at these tournaments having said all that i mean there's really nothing nothing not to like about his clay results last year and he seems in other respects like more of a player than he was this time last year uh sorry it was september so it's not a full 12 months but he's developed even in that time since then on hard court so yeah i if if we you have now the year long elo if we had like the clay season elo for 2021 and i was guessing at what his would be with the results i i think it'll be i don't know like a 6 Maybe that's maybe that's too optimistic, but he's at eight overall, so it seems reasonable. That seems it seems like the error bar is pretty big. But besides Nadal and Djokovic, who do you look at now as likely to have a better clay season than Sinner? Maybe Schwartzman. Um, I, I guess we don't really know where Team is right now, um, but he could. Um, maybe Tsitsipas, but. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Rublev has had some decent results on clay. I there there's no one who I'd be sure about. So besides, yeah, it's interesting that Schwartzman kind of slots in as number three among the among the people who are known quantities. That's that's the the tricky thing about about clay right now is that we did get a little bit of a clay season last fall, but it's been a long time. So I mentioned in my uh, expected points podcast this morning that Laszlo Gera is a clay guy who was particularly badly served by losing the regular clay season last year. He's not someone who's going to, he's not going to win the French Open, obviously. He's, he's not probably going to win Hamburg either. But if there had been a full clay season in 2020, he, he might have gotten another title. He might have gotten a couple deep runs, beat some good players, and we'd be remembering him better than if if his positive clay results were further back in the past. So there there are so many unknowns, especially like you mentioned with, with team being, being injured, I guess. He's out of Monte Carlo, I know. I'm not sure what his outlook is beyond that, but... But yeah, I mean, Sinner, Sinner's right up there with those guys, I think. We didn't mention Djokovic. I mean, he's got to be ahead of Sinner I, still. I did. I, I started with Djokovic. Oh, okay. okay. Like I, I, but beyond, beyond Nadal and Djokovic. So I said Schwartzman would be number three. And, you know, Zverev uh, also has had some, some good clay results, so is probably still ahead of Sinner. Yeah, that's that's fair, too. He's He and Tsitsipas, you probably... Their betting odds would be better than Sinner if you were putting betting odds on like Elo top five based only on clay results or something, which I'm, I'm guessing Ladbrooks is going to offer this year. I've, I'm in conversations with them. Huh. Uh, so, okay, let's go back to Horkacz a little bit. I feel bad whenever we talk about somebody who's you know, an up and coming prospect who just lost and ignoring the, the guy who beat them. So, Horkacz is 24. Um, and I had a little bit of a conversation with Eric Jonsson in our episode a couple of weeks ago about Lloyd Harris, who's also 24, also had a big result for him in the final of a, two, of a 500 in Dubai, I guess. So it's a different level than Horkacz, but the same basic idea. So in men's tennis, 24 is younger than it used to be, but it's still not that young, especially since we just spent the last 30 minutes talking about a 19-year-old who almost beat him. Um, but w- where do you see Horkacz on his on his career trajectory is he still on the way up 
Uh, I think he was. I, it, now that <laughs> now that he's got the thousand points for Miami, it's it it's harder to to move up from there. Um, I, I'm still... and I'll point out. I'll point out that it's a very rare case where he is number 16 in the ATP rankings. He's also number 16 in ELO. He is correctly ranked. Yeah, it's uh, that far down the rankings. It's it's unusual to line up like that. Yeah, I mean, that feels about right for where he is right now. I I think that that we have plenty of examples of guys who had not hit their peak or close to it at 24. Although, you know, now now you're going to ask me who and, and I might struggle. But um well Vavrinka. yeah Vavrinka. you know a- andy murray certainly peaked after 24 um victor estrella always comes to mind yeah i mean he <laughs> he won what those two he basically came from having hardly any tour level matches to winning two titles um yeah there's it schwartzman we've talked about so so he could like it, at this point it would surprise me i i would put him as more likely than not to to eventually reach the top 10 um, is he going to reach the top five? I think that came up before. I, less sure there, just so much competition, so many players younger than him who uh, are already near him in the rankings or ahead of him. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is a hard result to interpret. Like, if you look at who he beat, um, the last five rounds are all very, are, are quite impressive. I mean, Raonic and Sinner are the two lowest ranked of the, those five opponents. And they both are are much better according to Elo than according to rankings, and are actually like very tough opponents. Um, other three are, are at or are in or at near the top ten. Rublev has been hard to beat just about anywhere on hard courts, and and he beat him fairly decisively. Um, so it's not exactly like the last two kind of out of nowhere Masters winners and Masters finals that that I could find and and that come to mind the. Fonini Lajevic in Monte Carlo 2019, the the Sak Krajanovic in Paris in 2017. In in both those cases, you could say that really none of those finalists have, have reached that level again uh, or come particularly close. Um, but this doesn't feel like th- those draws got much more open than his did. On the other hand, Horkatz's, uh margins were all pretty fine. Like, they weren't all three setters, but they a lot of close sets, very close in terms of return points won by him and his opponent, and and that certainly suggests they could have gone the other way. And so, so that makes me think like he could, you know, he could have easily lost to Raonic in in that third set tiebreak in the fourth round, and then his name wouldn't be coming up at all on this show. So uh, I am not I am not sold on this, like starting a particularly great 2021 run for him. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bunch of, you know, first and second round losses in, in the months ahead, um, as opposed to, to building on this and, and reaching the top 10 quickly. The one comparison that I thought was interesting is I saw a list of, of players by the age at which they won their first master's title. And the guy who was adjacent to Horkacz on the list was Tommy Robredo, who I think he won just the one and it was on clay uh, when he was 24, obviously based on the context of what we're talking about here. And Robredo did peak at number five, um, had a very solid career. Do you think Horkacz is going to have as good a career as Robredo's or better, worse? Uh, probably I'll just predict worse based on 
all the things that, that could go wrong from here. But but he has that potential. I, I think, you know, some, sometimes I get into this, this trap that a lot of us do of focusing so much on what is his career high ranking going to be. And, and it's important that Robredo's was five, but it's also important that Robredo stuck around a really long time as a top player. And I think Horkots could could definitely do that. Like without injury, I could see him, you know, being a factor in Masters and Slams draws for a decade to come. So I don't know what that sort of career best moment along the way is going to be, and it might have just happened. But uh, he, he's he been a fixture already for a long time, and I, I, I expect, barring injury, that he'll stay that way. Yeah, and in, in fairness, that was a career highlight for Tommy Robredo, too. And he, he stuck around for a long time after that and was a factor at certainly at Roland Garros and many other tournaments for, yeah, similarly a decade after that. So, okay, back to, to Sinner a little bit. Um, one thing, I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, if if not other other commentators have said it a lot, that Sinner seems freakishly mature for his age, like it, both just personally and um, or emotionally off the court as well as his demeanor on court. He does not seem 19 at all. And... That seems to be, it's certainly not true of everyone, but it seems to be a trend that young players are either better PR trained or the players who emerge are the ones who are emotionally very advanced for their age. And I'm going to skip past that and go to the the sort of second order question here. When we're talking about projecting players, obviously the mental game is a big part of tennis and maturity is a big part of what a player's potential is like if you knew that someone like Nick Kyrgios or Alexander Bublik was going to mature in some important ways you'd probably have a different projection for them and I mean looking at a guy who's so mature at 19 thinking in terms of like we talked before about areas for obvious improvement which isn't the case for Sinner and his his emotional maturity does that have any effect on how how you project him or what what you think he'll do in five or ten years if he's already emotionally like let's say a 30 year old well one thing I think we're just guessing at is how does this look like on in you know a private setting in a practice court? you know, in, in the morning when he's deciding how to spend his day in making decisions about travel and coaching and just like managing his career generally, like is the unflappability we see on court translating elsewhere, or is that like a particular skill or pose or performance? Um, but, you know, if we accept that, that he is really mature and that mature in this case, we also mean, you know, measured and, and common wise in decision-making generally, then I think that that only helps because if we're, you know, you could imagine that a player could be quite attached to a certain ball toss on serve or, or motion or, you know, a decision about which of the many options on first serve to deploy when and, you know, all the things that go into first serve success and that it, it would take some detachment and maturity to recognize that even with the incredible results you've had, even with making the top 10 of the prestigious tennis abstract ELO rankings, that you have something important to work on and that you need to figure out how to do it best. And that that might mean trying some things that don't work. It might mean working with someone new, doing something that feels uncomfortable initially, trying something in practice that you don't try immediately in uh, in tournaments. And if, if he can bring that approach to decisions like that, um, in addition to all the other stuff like, 
you know, coaching, nutrition, travel, everything else, then that's, that's going to help enormously. Yeah. Um, one more question before we wrap this one up. Um, Hercotch and Sinner are friends off the court. And it, one thing you hear a lot from players in, in interviews about their peers is that, that they saw it coming. Like, I guess you heard a lot from the Russians about Aslan Karatev that, like if, if the guys who really knew Karatev knew he had it in him and you, you generally hear that only when it's positive, like you, you never, you never will hear Medvedev say, yeah, I didn't, never thought that guy was that good. I'm not surprised he lost to a qualifier in the first round. That doesn't really come up. It's always positive. So maybe it's not that meaningful, but if, if we posit a sort of like generic forecast, that's reasonably good that just say like tennis abstract ELO, do you think that players with their knowledge of their peers uh, could do better? Ooh, yeah. I mean, not only is it always positive, but you only hear it when the positive thing happened. I mean, you gen or, or at least nobody amplifies it because you don't care. So like, yeah, once it's proven that Karatsev is capable of what he's done in 2021, then the players who've known him for a long time are like, yeah, I, I knew this, this was possible. Um, once you actually make them, though, pit all these potential stars against each other and their and their prospects, are they really capable of doing that? I wonder if there's some like way of seeing what they already kind of think. I mean, w one way you could look at this is who does Federer invite to um, to his compound to train for a week? And is that an indicator or maybe that's the cause of, of that player then rising in the rankings later on? Like Federer knew that, that this was a player who isn't yet a name, but is worthy of hitting with. Um, I don't know. My guess is that players that that it would vary a lot between players, that some players really don't focus on that and watch it in the same way and are much more focused on on their own games. Uh, and, you know, like. I think I, I come back to this a lot because I'm always impressed by Andy Murray's sort of awareness of all levels of the sport and intelligence and in analyzing it. And so I would I would I would put more money on like his projections than maybe uh, I don't know who would who would be like less likely to. <laughs> now I'm doing a meta projection of like who who is going to be better at this. But yeah, I think it really depends on on the players and and how how closely they're they're watching these things. Um, what do you think? Well, when when Andy Murray picked Caroline Garcia to be a future number one, <laughs> uh, did I put you, all did my life savings on, on it. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, it still might happen. That, yeah, it might. Uh, that was that was the one Simona Halep match in Miami this year. And it, it that did not give a lot of hope to people who are still optimistic for Caroline Garcia to become number one. And that's the thing, like the, the things we hear are always positive. And in a way that's fun. Like that's one thing I love about men's and women's tennis right now is we went through a, a few years where it was fun to watch the big four, but like most of the players, we kind of knew what they were beyond the big four. I mean, the big four also, we knew they were great, but I mean, when you got a, a matchup like Goffin against... I don't know, Fanini for the seventh time. Like, it's only so interesting. But now you have all these guys for whom the sky is the limit. And when you have someone like, I don't know, like Karatsev, where you can imagine him as a top 10 guy, or you can imagine him playing challengers again in a couple of years, like the people who think he'll be playing challengers in a couple of years don't say it in a press conference. So 
So I don't know how to how to judge that. I, I as we talk about it, I'm thinking like the the whole uh, school of research around super forecasting, Philip Tetlock, and studying ex- expert judgment. I wonder if there have been studies that are somehow analogous to this, like like the sort of metaphor casting you're talking about, whether experts are better than than lay people or better than than generic algorithms at at judging their peers. And and I wonder if it, it depends a lot based on the, the actual thing being predicted. It seems like some fields would be better than others. Uh, and I'm sure there are some where the experts are worse because that's one of the themes in Ted Lux research is experts or the people who are accepted as experts often aren't as good as lay people or or generic um, baseline type algorithms. So it's tough. It's a fun question to think about. I don't know how we'd ever test it. I don't think we'd ever be able to sit down players and get their honest opinion about their peers, including the negative, but it would be fun numbers to have right after we get all that Hawkeye data we're, we're questing for. Yeah, well, maybe the Caroline Garcia example is instructive and players would be more likely to to guess about the other tour and maybe more objective in a way. So they'd have to actually follow the other tour and that would limit who could do it. But, um, you know, I'd be interested in like, hey, these two players who are in, near each other in the rankings and in age, who's going to have the higher career ranking? Of course, then you'd need years to evaluate the results. And maybe Murray has learned. I don't think he's projected any other women to be number one. And Garcia so, made number four, so you know it wasn't as bad as you're depicting. It was a weak number four. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I have I have no idea. I don't remember that at all. I'm I'm not sure I would have believed. It, I w- I'm not sure I would have guessed her, her peak ranking was even top ten. So I I have my own biases going on here. So let's let's wrap this one up there. Um, lots to watch with Yannick Sinner and of course the rest of the tour in the upcoming men's season. I think next week we are going to do an episode in our book club with uh, Arthur Ashe's book, Days of Grace. So if you haven't read that, now's a great time to do that. We'll be talking about that one next week. And also if you are uh, behind listening to Tennis Abstract Podcast, I uh, recorded a great episode last week with Katrina Adams talking about her new book and lots of other good stuff over the last couple months. You can always check that out at podcast.tennisabstract.com. And of course, I'm doing these daily podcasts, expected points, um, three or four minutes every day on going on in tennis and also during the baseball season. I'm doing The Opener, which is openerpodcast.com. So you can listen three or four minutes about baseball as well and hear about a sport with all the stats that tennis can only dream of. So Carl, thank you as always for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next week.